I had a very strange childhood. Had the worst case any doctor had ever seen. My job is to keep healing. So that is the story. We all have remarkable stories within us. Stories of adversity, challenges, triumphs, and ultimately of healing. This is Your Health, Your Story, the podcast. What do you think of when you hear the word biohacker? For me, that used to conjure thoughts of cyborgs and people trying to splice genes and make superhumans. But as I spoke more and more with biohackers out there, I started to see that they weren't that different from a lot of patients I would meet. They wanted to optimize themselves. They were just starting at different levels. That got me thinking, can we apply biohacking principles to medicine for better outcomes? I've seen what biohacking can do for professional athletes and top performers, and some of the technology they were using we're also using in our medical clinic with tough chronic cases and seeing impressive results as well. That's why we're having today's guest on. He's an expert biohacker and has authored a number of books including Stronger by Stress, Metabolic Autophagy, and The Immunity Fix, which he co-authored with Dr. James D. Nicolantonio, who we had on the podcast recently. Hailing from Estonia, he's got a unique take on how we can live healthier and longer. This is the story of biohacking medicine with Sim Land. First off, Sim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I want to really start with, with understanding how you got into this because you wrote your first book at 21 years old, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> Which book was that? Uh, well, it's actually, it wasn't like a health book. It was more of like a personal development book. And uh, yeah, it was most about like, how do you optimize yourself as a human being, both like mentally and uh, physically. So that was like a personal development book. But uh, after that, I also wrote uh, several books about the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting. And uh, in uh, 2019, last year, I wrote like what I would consider like first, like a really, like an actual book that I personally would consider like a really, really important book. It was like a metabolic autophagy, uh, which is uh, about autophagy and intermittent fasting of how do you use those things uh, for longevity and uh, lifespan. And uh, this year I published uh, Stronger by Stress, which is about uh, hormesis or like Mm -hmm. stress adaptation and resilience, as well as uh, the immunity fix uh, with uh, Dr. James. So you've been really busy, but what I'm trying to get is that at 21 years old, I was thinking about kind of party. I wasn't thinking about health too much, even though I've been (laughs) in medicine my whole life. What was your story that got you into this at such a young age and got you so interested in biohacking health, performance, longevity? I think I've uh, at least been curious about all those things uh, throughout my entire life. So uh, I have wanted to just, uh, you know, get smarter and stronger and faster uh, all the time. Mostly when I delved into like these biohacking things was, yeah, just uh, when I was um, doing like uh, weightlifting or like, you know, doing gym, building muscle and that sort of thing. That's where I tried to figure out ways of just enhancing the process and uh, getting uh, more results. So that's why I maybe delved into like nutrition, uh, recovery and just overall um, training. So that's where it started at a young age. And what made you decide to write about it? What made you decide? Was it really just a passion about all this that you wanted to share with the world? Or was it something else? Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, like a partly about the passion. I kind of came to the conclusion uh, when I was in, in like my first year in college, when I was in 20 or something, that uh, I would want to do like something related to writing or content creation, uh, whatever it may that entail. At the time, I uh, did consider like writing a book is like something that I want to do in my life. And uh, that's where I started to, you know, create uh, blog articles, 
and just other uh, resources about it to kind of uh, develop the skill of uh, writing because like it's not going to happen like overnight. So I was kind of preparing myself uh, in advance of uh, being like an author and doing it as a full-time thing uh, at that time. So yeah, just starting off with articles and blog posts and uh, moving on with like uh, bigger, bigger things. Yeah, that's very cool because you, you had goals, you had passions, and you had this calling at a young age. And I think that that's incredibly important for health and longevity is to find those things, the intangibles, the esoteric pieces, which are a little bit, you know, give you that fuel to, to do that and to find at such a young age is incredibly important, I feel. Now, you mentioned the immunity fix. I had Dr. D. Nicolantonio on the last episode to go into the research to talk about the book a little bit more. What was your experience like working with doctors in general, not just Dr. D. Nick, because he's awesome, but being a non-professional biohacker, you don't, let's say, have a medical degree. What's it been like working with other doctors or just the, the medical community? A lot of it has been pretty positive. So, uh, after I've kind of established my platform on online and as a content creator and as a researcher, then I have like, you know, come across many doctors and scientists who have like actually like uh, acknowledge my work and they uh, review it to a certain extent. And yeah, like so a lot of uh, doctors like Dr. McCola or um, Dr. Christopher Shade, Dr. David Sinclair, they all kind of uh, at least uh, consume my content uh, on a regular basis. And uh, just, you know, they, they have, like, some of them have read my books as well. And uh, yeah, the feedback has been quite positive. But, you know, there's, I'm sure, like, I, I think I just haven't come across like these negative doctors who may be skeptical or who may be like very critical about biohacking. I haven't come across them uh, personally, but uh, I'm pretty sure that they're out there. Oh, I'm sure they're out there because I've been in medicine my whole life. My father's a doctor. I've traveled the world, been around doctors my whole, trained doctors, created a whole company to help doctors really. And of course, the ones that come to you are the ones that are interested. In, and it's wonderful to hear that more and more like Merkel Sinclair, Christopher Shea, all these guys that are kind of pushing the boundaries are coming to you and embracing you. But conventional medicine still is the mainstay in the majority. And a lot of doctors there, of course, you know, put down anything that's outside of just what they learned in medical school. Do you find it's difficult for people who may embrace a conventional mindset to then accept biohacking? Have you run across that? So let's get outside of the doctors because it seems you've had favorable encounters with them. But what about the general public? Do you, do you find some kind of resistance when you put it out? Or is it mostly people coming to you for that and not giving any negativity about biohacking? I think uh, it can be like 50-50 so uh, some people accept it and uh, kind of um, enjoy it or uh, acknowledge it, whereas others uh, are relatively skeptical. They may like, you know, embrace some of the practices of biohacking, uh, like intermittent fasting or uh, training or saunas and uh, other like, technological things. They may do those things, but they just uh, don't consider that as biohacking. Like they would just say, hey, it's just uh, lifting weights or it's just uh, taking a sauna or something, right. which is true to a certain extent. But at the same time, they maybe just uh, think that the term biohacking itself is just just like a marketing a gimmick or something uh, that may deceive some people, which I would say maybe there is certainly like this uh, appeal to it, so to say, that the term itself is, um, it sounds more uh, awesome than it actually is. <laughs> but I think it's actually a good thing because, you know, even as a doctor, even as a health practitioner, you have to kind of also brand yourself to a certain extent of uh, how do you learn how to actually convey your messages to other people better so that they will understand it. 
and they would actually start to you know accept it uh, because like if you're uh, like this dry scientist who goes only into like these theories and studies and research then you're not gonna really make progress with the uh, everyday person who doesn't really understand these uh, concepts and they will just want to hear like the simple answer I can agree with that because in medicine, I've found that most people just kind of let it go over their head when they're speaking to a doctor and the doctor starts to get into the biochemistry and start to list out all these things that they've never heard of. I do think medicine is failing in that respect to connect with layman terms and just with with the person in front of them and have just a normal conversation. So I do think that's really essential for biohacking as well. Now, do you find that biohacking has a place in medicine or it should be more involved in medicine and with reversal of disease? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, let's say customizing your uh, diet or lifestyle based upon your genetics is uh, is biohacking. And uh, it's definitely like something that I think uh, everyone should do, uh, at least to a certain extent. Like you don't necessarily have to follow it to a T, but uh, yeah, you do have to consider some of uh, genetic abnormalities or differences for sure. And like there is not, not a single let's say diet or a single workout routine that is going to be applicable to everyone. So you always have to kind of customize it to the individual. Even using like these different technological gadgets on an everyday setting is also very uh, easy and uh, very effective, like, you know, measuring your sleep. Because like as a, as a doctor, you shouldn't just, um, you know, look at like the biomarkers or something you, or like tell them what kind of foods to eat and what kind of foods to avoid. You should also be curious about their other lifestyle habits, like how, how much do they sleep, how, much, how do they exercise. Yeah, like what else do they do? And uh, with like these gadget, gadgets, like you can use the OR ring or you can use the, the whoop band to actually get like more feedback, more uh, measurable uh, quantifications about the per- person. Because like people, they don't really know, like they don't pay attention to those things and they're not re- really aware either about yeah. uh, like how well do they actually sleep. Like they may say that they sleep well, but in reality, they sleep only like maybe four hours. <laughs> It's really important to understand yourself, but also to use the data to help understand yourself. I feel a lot of people have lost touch with themselves. They don't listen to the signs, the symptoms, the other things. And sometimes it is required a third party almost or technology to help you to tune back in with your body. Do you feel that biohacking itself or these ideas that constitute biohacking should be applied differently to a healthy individual than a diseased one? And let me quickly make my case here a little bit and explain that because to me, a lot of times it's like someone who's going to the gym. You have weightlifters that are well experienced, optimized, and they can use different types of techniques and go very advanced on different types of machinery. But then you have someone who's brand new, who's maybe a little frail, maybe a little bit fatigued and and just trying to do these advanced things. And in some ways, it's almost a hindrance. It's going to, you know, result in them getting worse sometimes. I've seen that in biohackers a little bit where I'm around patients a lot and they try and skip the fundamentals of healing and jump into some, you know, really advanced stem cell stuff and other things rather than try and get themselves to a baseline of health. Do you agree with that? Would you approach someone who's in a different state of not optimized, not healthy, but chronically ill, inflamed, all these things, lots of stress in their lives? Do you believe that biohacking has to be applied differently to each individual? Yeah, absolutely. And 
the difference, biggest difference would be that um, for the beginners, I wouldn't like uh, prescribe them some really complex uh, like a uh, routine because uh, they're at, the, at that moment, they just need to do like the simplest things and they're going to see the results uh, really fast. Like they just need to stop uh, drinking Coke and uh, stop eating uh, sugar. So they're going to see all the better results even from doing like the simplest things. And for them, they don't really need to go into like a very really, uh, like complex things. Um, like you mentioned, like the stem cells and, and those sort of things uh, like the foundation in my opinion should be to kind of fix all the minor lifestyle issues that uh, may be problematic like you know stress and sleep deprivation and uh, not not exercising and uh, overeating and so those simple things should be the first and foremost thing uh, that uh, everyone should uh, do and then maybe like if you have established a certain baseline for your health then uh, then at that point you can consider like yeah okay i want to take it up a notch i want to optimize it further and i want to like uh, increase my other aspects of my performance or uh, well-being you talk a lot about fasting i mean we talk about diets and everything are there any cases which you don't recommend someone fast usually the uh, fasting isn't uh, beneficial for let's um, someone who is like pregnant uh, breastfeeding or maybe like a child so children don't need to do it as well as the uh, like the elderly so that for them it's harder for them to uh, fast it's harder for them to maintain muscle mass uh, from the fast and uh, maintaining muscle mass is a very important thing uh, for preventing uh, age really the sarcopenia so uh, yeah the, and you know metabolic dysfunction and metabolic disorder will also come from if you start to lose uh, your muscle mass. So just maintaining muscle mass would be like a higher priority if you're, um, let's say, above 65 or something. What about its impact on hormones when you're fasting? Because a lot of patients that you see, a lot of people in general, their hormonal balance is off, whether that's due to toxicity, just poor circadian rim, a million different things. Have you looked at that at all, how fasting impacts hormone? It can affect like different hormones. So uh, when it comes to fat loss hormones and uh, like insulin sensitivity hormones, then those things improve. So you will like lower your blood sugar, you can lower your uh, blood pressure, uh, you can lose weight with it. And uh, yeah, you can also turn on like the different longevity pathways in the body, like uh, AMPK or autophagy and uh, sirtuins and others. But when it comes to, let's say, and it's also like a stressor to the body. So uh, it does cause stress. And if you overdo it, then that um, excessive amount of stress can lower like things like testosterone and uh, thyroid functioning. And so it does have like a, like a negative side as well. And, you know, you can overdo anything. So it always has to be taken um, at the right dose and uh, also make sure that you uh, recover from it uh, with, with enough recovery. The right dose and right time as well, correct? Because I believe you say you fast differently in the winter versus summer. Is that true? I personally, I don't like change a lot. Uh, mm. I, I may like uh, eat slightly earlier when it's the winter time. Uh, but yeah, generally, uh, like, yeah, you, you definitely should also change the fasting window and uh, routine based upon like what your goals, what's your current condition and uh, what's your preference as well. Like maybe some people don't want to like eat once, once a day. <laughs> they actually want to eat like three or four times a day or something. So yeah, it's, it depends on the person. To someone who's out there and listening and, and basically has been in, an, I, I would say, maybe just a, an okay state of health, but you know, eating two, three times a day and seeing this and, and basically saying, well, fasting just doesn't seem like it would fit me at all. You know, I'm eating that three times a day. How could this even be healthy? I feel already fatigued, you know, with such little caloric intake. 
What would you say to someone that's thinking about doing, whether it's intermittent fasting or just a fasting routine and has those types of objections? Let's say like when it comes to like energy production or fatigue, then uh, fasting uh, can actually increase your like energy efficiency. And, uh, you know, a lot of people anecdotally report that they do feel more energized while they are fasting and uh, they get less tired. And I personally did notice also like a shift uh, in just my physical endurance as well as uh, like overall uh, resilience uh, when I did switch over to the, this intermittent fasting lifestyle. So like I don't have like, you know, when you're fasting, then uh, you eat uh, less often. So you have like less of these ups and downs in your blood sugar. And uh, these ups and downs in your blood sugar, they do, you know, give you energy after you eat, but uh, they also come crashing down uh, quite rapidly. Therefore, you kind of uh, go into this uh, roller coaster throughout the entire day. Another problem is also that, you know, when you are teaching your body by eating these small meals all throughout the entire day, then you're never teaching your body how to burn its own body fat. When you look at the amount of body fat our body carries, then it's not like a problem of uh, energy shortage. Uh, we have plenty of energy with us all the time, even like, you know, very lean people, athletic people, they have tens and thousands of calories in their body fat all the time. So it's not a matter of um, like it's not a matter of uh, fuel availability. It's a matter of like access to it. You're not able to access to it. You're not able to tap into your body fat stores that, that effectively. And whenever you do skip a meal or whenever you do do some fasting, then uh, you go into this energy crisis in the short term. And uh, the way you overcome that is by you know promoting these ketogenic pathways in the body that um, condition the body to start using more fat uh, for fuel. You'll be able to tap into your body fat stores uh, very easily. You don't have to necessarily do fasting with that either. You can ignite those ketogenic pathways with like just some forms of carbohydrate restriction as well as uh, exercise. It can also do it. Yeah, I feel like so many people have become very inefficient with the ways they eat and their relationship with diet, meaning they think more is better. And, and what you said may seem counterintuitive, but it's very true that when you, uh, you know, limit the caloric intake, when you limit things and you go into a fasting state, you allow other systems clean, you become much more efficient with what you do put in your body. So that's yeah. something we've seen with, with patients all the time. When you give them a healing diet, let's say, that is restrictive from what they're known, that tries to limit and, of course, kind of accelerate the detox pathways and just regeneration, that they actually eat much less, they eat higher quality, but they have much more energy. So it's not, you know, this is the, the state I think we're in, especially in America. Everything's quantity. We want bigger, you know, large yeah. amounts of calories, not ever looking at the quality. But the quality is what really determines it. And that's where your body will either use it for energy or store it away or just not use it at all and just slow it down. You know, that's the really interesting thing. And if you look historically, of course, on humankind, we've been fasting for, for very long periods of time, for thousands and thousands of years. This is something yeah. we did. But would you recommend fasting and even exercising while sick, while chronically ill, not even acutely sick, but chronically ill? I think it would have to depend on the particular disease. Um, like a lot of the diseases of uh, civilization, like, you know, diabetes, heart disease, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, those things, they 
they are also like uh, in some aspects uh, caused by this excess uh, that the body uh, is in this overnourished state for too long and experiences other other imbalances so uh, generally you know exercise and um, well let's say, let's say exercise first that the exercise is probably one of the most effective medicine uh, like natural medicine there is like it it can improve your body composition improves your blood sugar stability it uh, you know improves your metabolic syndrome so yeah like exercise itself is just a cornerstone to a healthy lifestyle so i think uh, even if you are like relatively sick then uh, even then you can see great improvements in your um, in your health and uh, biomarkers if you start to exercise at least in some capacity like going for a walk uh, going for a hike or something that can also be considered exercise so you just have to always scale it uh, to your level so if you're like disabled or you know you don't have you know very um, functional functionality in your muscles then of course you can't uh, go go into a, like a crossfit class you have to scale it to your level if you're not doing exercise not necessarily but you know if you, even just going through to the nature it has been shown to have like very therapeutic effects on like uh, depression as well as inflammation and uh, just uh, lowering stress levels but when it comes to fasting, then uh, fasting can can be uh, it can be more dangerous than exercise, and it can have more negative side effects than exercise. But it all, all, also ha- you can scale it to your level. So um, you know, just um, skipping the snacking and uh, making sure that you don't eat immediately before bed that can be um, achieving at least some effect from the circadian rhythm aspect that you do this time restricted eating that. Uh, you narrow it down a little bit. You don't necessarily go for like a very long fast, but you narrow it down and then you can see also like similar benefits as you would with exercise, like weight loss, uh, better metabolic syndrome and uh, just overall health. And, and you mentioned there going out into nature, not eating before you go to sleep because of the circadian rhythms. These are very much things that you want to be in tune with nature. And I do think biohacking has gotten a little bit, sometimes a bad rep for trying to do something unnatural, such as, you know, splicing gene or doing, you know, right. some sort of other things. Is your approach one of nature first, such as an example, food first before taking supplements, like improve your food quality? Or are you really trying to hack biology in unnatural ways? I, I would prioritize the nature thing uh, first so that you should always do the um, fundamentals and uh, do the easiest things uh, first before going uh, into like the hacks, <laughs> literally. Uh, because, uh, you know, first of all, uh, you know, although some some hacks or some supplements, they can uh, work, they can be uh, like a shortcut, they're not uh, as sustainable as the lifestyle itself. So if you follow the right lifestyle, if you do it like um, as natural as possible, then you don't uh, necessarily may need to uh, go for the other route. And uh, yeah, it can just maybe be more time efficient and it can also be generally healthier as a result of that. But at the same time, I also acknowledge that uh, to a certain extent, biohacking is like getting away with things. <laughs> like, uh, you know, if you want to have a, like a cheesecake or like a birthday cake, then there are biohacks to mitigate the damage. Like you can take some maybe chromium, uh, you can maybe exercise before uh, before eating the cake, uh, you may take some berberine after eating uh, or something. So there are ways of like also hacking it, uh, of uh, taking a shortcut uh like but it's not like it's the problem is that it's not like that sustainable uh so uh, it can work every once in a while but uh, it shouldn't be like the first and foremost uh, priority you know i had this question the other day because someone saw me and i was wearing airpods and they were talking oh i thought you were healthy that has emf that has you know negative it's so close to the brain all these things and i i get it like i understand mm-hmm. but at the same time 
I'm not one of those people that's not that's going to deprive myself of the cheesecake, right? right. All the time. Right. Every once in a while, I want to enjoy it. I wanted to work out without the cord attached to me because I was moving around a lot. And I took right. the picture and posted it and got a little bit of heat for being unhealthy when I understand there are hacks even for that of how I'm going to mitigate certain EMF exposure after that, how I'm going to eat differently, how I'm going to do all these things and sleep in accordance and not keep things uh, EMF that give off radiation around my bed when I regenerate at night. So I could really appreciate that because it allows you to still be human, right? Who in the world is never going to have a piece of cheesecake, never going to indulge in something that is quote unquote unhealthy, but biohacking, I believe, and, and just living more into nature as well allow you to do that and still be healthy so that you're not deprived sometimes of things like join happiness of having a piece of cake and not being so damn guilty about it. So I I really do think that what you're allowing people to do through biohacking, through these tips and techniques is to live their lives still because a lot of people, and I get this when patients first come to our center, they go, oh, you want me to get rid of everything fun, right? No <laughs> eating this, no that, I can't drink as much. Well, those are the things maybe that you indulged in that got you there. But you could still do that probably after medical treatment. And I think yeah. biohacking allows you to do that. One of the best examples of it is also like a blue light exposure at night. So, uh, you know, the artificial light that comes from uh, screens it uh, will inhibit your body's ability to sleep and it lowers sleep quality by suppressing like melatonin, the sleep hormone. So like, you know, optimally we should all go to like uh, bed after uh, sunset and maybe use like only candlelight, but you know, no one is going to do that uh, because it's impractical and people just like to, you know, use their d- technology. So a good biohack for that is to use like these uh, blue blocking glasses mm-hmm. so you can still use the technology. Uh, you just hack away the light environment. So you see like this, uh, like a reddish, uh, through a reddish filter that uh, filters out the blue light so that you don't inhibit the uh, melatonin and you can, you can still sleep better. You know, speaking of those marker like melatonin and others, what are the ones that you test and recommend testing, you know, the, the basically labs or anything to understand a baseline of your health? Are there certain test labs or, or just are you using O-ring mostly? What, what are you going with to show that you're at least in a healthy state? One of the easiest things that... Uh, you can do on like on a daily basis is just your uh, uh, blood sugar or like fasting blood sugar in the morning. So if it's uh, above 100, then that can be, that's, you know, considered uh, not good. Uh, but it also depends on like other things. Like if you eat you know, like the cheesecake the night before, then of course your uh, blood sugar is going to be high. Generally, you don't want to have like your blood sugar high on a regular basis. And generally, it's uh, better to have it uh, slightly low. Then um, when it comes to like uh, the ones that you have to go to a lab for, then uh, I generally follow like these um, overall uh, health panels. Like you measure your uh, CRP, your inflammation, uh, you measure your uh, cholesterol levels, you measure your triglycerides, uh, you measure maybe if I were to be like considered about like longevity or something, then like IGF-1 can be a good marker to see like if your IGF-1 is high, then that can be at least like some high IGF-1s, high, high IGF-1 levels are associated with like some malignancies and some other diseases. But at the same time, too low IGF-1 levels can also be uh, unwanted. So yeah, I, I do think like a, the easy general overview about your like blood sugar inflammation and uh, fatty acid profile and cholesterol that can already give you like a pretty good uh, glimpse about uh, your overall health at least like a reasonable degree. 
What about genetic testing? Because I know you speak about this, and I agree that longevity is basically 20% determined by genetics and 80% epigenetics, and that means environment, what you do. So what are your thoughts on genetic testing? Because what I've seen is patients and people getting genetic testing and then going into a state of fear because it, it kind of starts to show them something that they've assumed may happen, and then they start to actually realize that happening. What do you think about genetic testing? I think it can be very uh, eye-opening and definitely useful. So I, I have done um, my genetics. I think it was like, uh, it wasn't like 23andMe, but it was something uh, similar. Uh, and I use like the platform uh, Self Decode, uh, where uh, they basically analyze it for you and they give you like a report based upon mm-hmm. your genetics. So they can tell you, oh, you have this gene, you have like a bad cardiovascular gene or something, you have, you're more predisposed to inflammation, et cetera, uh, or you have like a bad fatless gene or a good fatless gene, whatever it may be. It makes it a lot more easier to understand because if you, you, you as an individual who doesn't have like maybe background in those uh, things, then you can be just uh, confused about it unless you have like something, someone, someone who's walking through it with you. Uh, so yeah, I think um, the genetics, um, they work or they, they're going to be useful to the extent that you uh, understand them and uh, know how to maybe adjust your lifestyle based upon them. I find them, they can be good to know maybe like your weaknesses or something. Like you you know that you have like a bad blood sugar regulation gene or something. Uh, so then you can take some uh, precautionary measurements against that. But at the same time, you shouldn't maybe get too caught up with them either. So it's not going to be that uh, you're destined to have some sort of a disease because you're bad genetics. Uh, like you said, like 80% of it is considered to be epigenetic. So the lifestyle you follow, the uh, food you eat, the environment you're in, the thoughts you have, or like, yeah, the activities you do, all those things uh, are actually more important at the end of the day. It is predisposition and not destiny, as you said. And, yeah. you know, that's what people need to realize that if there's something shows up, that is not meaning that will happen. It means you have a proclivity and inclination for that. So you have to be more um, uh, proactive about it, right? And that's yeah. where I think it, it can be amazing information, but it could also be something that leads you to fear more, which is not good. So I think in, in the hands of the right person with the right professional or someone there to guide you. I always found genetic, uh, you know, testing to be quite good, but oftentimes people just get those genetic tests and suddenly start freaking out. It's like they've been, you know, put into this state of panic due to what they're seeing from it. But we know epigenetics is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Speaking of longevity, one of the things I know our center and our company has been looking at for a while, and a lot of people have is NAD nicotinamide, adenine, dinucleotide, essential for energy and metabolism, DNA repair. And I know you speak about increasing levels. What are your thoughts on raising NAD intravenously and orally? Well, I think uh, intravenously is uh, definitely more bioavailable and a more effective way of doing it. So uh, yeah, like the oral oral supplements, uh, they they do appear to work and raise NAD levels, but yeah, probably not to the same extent as the uh, IV. I think like if you were to take the oral route, uh, then uh, the best one I, I come across is the um, NAD Golds by Quicksilver Scientific. So they have the liposomal uh, NMN with uh, trimethylglycine and uh, the liposomal are definitely more uh, bioavailable than the like um, capsules of nicotinamide or something. 
I would counter that a little bit because we do produce NAD in a capsule formula that, that has been shown to be quite effective, but I understand where you're coming from because NAD, I have to say, is, is still incredibly under-researched in a sense because you have nicotine riboside that's being researched by Chromadex and others that is incredibly sort of, you know, pushed in through the marketing, everything like that. But what we've realized in clinical experience as well is that, of course, intravenously is the way route you'd want to go. But you could also get it there with the combination and synergy of things like coenzyme Q10 and improve bioavailability, actually. And I find it, you know, NAD is one of these really, uh, really essential things that, that is only looked at now by, I feel like, biohackers and top people. What has been your experience with the research and everything you found into not just NAD, but other supplements and other really important uh, molecules and, and nutrients for energy, for uh, cellular regeneration and DNA repair. What, what are you finding? Yeah, I do take uh, NAD myself as well. Uh, like uh, I, I take nicotinamide riboside uh, on some days as well as uh, on other days I take NMN. I usually, I reduce it like every day. I usually only on days where I may experience like some uh, jet lag or uh, sleep deprivation or something. Uh, because then I would like want to get like a boost in NAD and then I would use it uh, more effectively. And on other other things that I may consider like really good uh, would be um, like uh, carnosine, for example. So carnosine is is, is, good for um, like fighting advanced glycation end products. So it's also like considered like this uh, anti-aging longevity compound. So I do take carnosine on a daily basis as well. And then... uh, of course, like you mentioned, CoQ10 is something uh, that I also consider very important for cardiovascular health. Uh, then I've, I've been trying out like Reservatrol. I know like David Sinclair takes it on a daily basis and he says it's a really, you know, important or very effective. Uh, I don't know like the how true it is, but at least it's not, it's not something. I, I do think it can at least help with like some um, like metabolic uh, health. Like it can help with um, insulin sensitivity and uh, blood sugar regulation and triglycerides. So I do take that as well. But well, like one of my favorite ones uh, is uh, glycine actually. So glycine is just like an amino acid and uh, it's uh, found to be really effective in like uh, fighting oxidative stress and uh, also being like a calming inhibitory uh, like amino acid that can help with like sleep it increases like deep sleep especially and uh, just uh, reduces inflammation in the body yeah no those are all really good supplements i think to take on a basic daily basis what about your thoughts on minerals? Because when I talked to Dr. D. Antonio, we talked a lot about, of course, immunity and, and things like uh, magnesium and zinc and how we are so deprived and how even food is 30% less of those minerals as it used to be because our soil is so depleted. Do you supplement with any minerals or do you just try and get everything from your foods and try and eat quality? Yeah, like minerals are super important and they basically, they're like, they're driving almost every, you know, healthy process in the body, like energy production, brain function, also as well as like melatonin synthesis. So yeah, you do need uh, these essential minerals to uh, be optimally healthy and carry out all these processes. Uh, One of the most important ones, I think, is just magnesium because it's uh, involved in uh, almost all of the you know biochemical reactions in the body, as well as uh, it's uh, the most depleted one from the soil and the foods that we eat. So yeah, like magnesium deficiencies are uh, rampant, and 
at the same time, you do need more magnesium when you are stressed out or the, the more diseased you are, the more magnesium you tend to need. So I do take that one as well as a supplement, um, just just not, not because of that I need it for my like disease prevention or something, but just because it's uh, so depleted from uh, the food in general. So if you were starting to feel a little bit sick, or even if you were having symptoms on almost a, a daily basis, not saying you are, I'm sure you're very healthy and, and uh, you know, free of disease, but what would be your go-to? What would you start doing immediately to try and change that? What would be some of the hacks and tips and techniques you would start to use? One thing uh, that I do take on some days uh, as a way to maybe catch a cold or like prevent a cold uh, or prevent infections is a zinc. So uh, zinc has like antiviral properties and uh, it also inhibits like some viral replication. And in some studies uh, like zinc lozenges, especially, especially they have been shown to like reduce symptoms of colds and reduce also the overall length of how long you stay with a cold. But you have to kind of uh, start taking the zinc uh, within 20, 24 hours or 48 hours uh, after you experience the first symptoms. So the, maybe the first thing I would do is uh, get a, get like, um, I have like these uh, zinc lozenges. So maybe it's maybe two or 300 milligrams of zinc, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll, I'll take like something of that. I'll also maybe heat up like the infrared sauna. So, uh, you know, heat can be very therapeutic against um, infections. So it, you know, for the heat kills like bacteria and uh, pathogens. Uh, but it can also inhibit like viral replication by turning on the heat shock proteins and uh, just the uh, sweating is also detoxifying and uh, sweating out like the some aspects of the infection. That's what my like uh, parents and grandparents told me to do when I was a child that you know the sweating is good or like you know drinking a lot of liquids so that you can like excrete the infection. I heard the same thing. You know, sweat is good. And of course, uh, a fever is is a response, right? Is your immune response to try and raise the heat and kill yeah. off a pathogen, virus, or a bacteria? Now. Before we got start recording, you know, we, we talked about how things were in Estonia during this pandemic and, and everything COVID. And you said it was going quite well. What do you attribute that to? And what do you attribute, you know, how do you feel about this whole pandemic as a whole? Because you're in Estonia right now, very different than where I am in New York, where we're dealing with lockdowns and so much talk about, you know, coronavirus and not maybe enough about health and how to improve that. But what do you think, uh, you know, Estonia or Sweden or places like that have done that are allowing it to stay open and see such relatively low rates? First of all, I'll say like maybe because there's less uh, like people, so we're not like uh, crammed together. Like, so, you know, people are relatively uh, apart from each other. And, you know, Estonians aren't very, as well as like Finnish people and uh, Swedish, I would imagine as well, that they're not uh, very huggy people, people or they're not going to kiss you when you when they meet you or like in Spain or Italy where people are, you know, really... Um, I don't know, like warm with each other. Like Estonians, mm. they do social dis- distancing by default almost. <laughs> so uh, they, you know, they're not like very uh, in large groups already. So I think that that was probably like a very important factor. 
but also like maybe like the, the population here isn't as metabolically sick as the US or the other Western countries either. Like we don't have this, uh, you know, very fast food culture. So most people do eat like just home food and uh, they don't have like these uh, super high, hyper palatable uh, junk foods. Um, so they're just metabolically more healthy. Like, of course, there is a lot of, you know, heart disease and other uh, ailments here as well, but it's not um, as severe uh, as in the States. But when it comes to like the lockdowns or that kind of thing, uh, then uh, I think uh, people here have been, uh, let's say, they've uh, they've gone to not become like relatively skeptical about politicians and the governments because of like you know ex-Soviet Union country. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason why people don't really they don't take those things that that seriously, or they they stay skeptical and they try to keep their freedoms uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, no, I mean, my, my parents, my family is, is from Eastern Europe and Poland. And, you know, we've witnessed that as well. Uh, just a different approach to not just governance, but to how you eat. And I think that's one of the biggest factors that you're talking about when you're looking at any, you know, metabolic disorder. It's, it's what you're putting into your body. And so much of what I remember growing up was just daily cooked meals and fresh and everything was very, yeah. you know, plant-based, of course. But of course, it was me. It was, it was meat and potatoes are a staple of Eastern Europe in some yeah. ways. But, but it, was, it was very fresh. It was very, and, and, you know, going into many of my friends' houses, it wasn't like that. It was just the microwave kind of, you know, dinners, lots mm-hmm. of candies, lots of everything else. And it does make a difference. It really does. And I think... When you have something like a pandemic, those differences really get put under a magnifying glass. And yeah. so places like Estonia, Eastern Europe in general that, that have this a little bit, you know, different approach culturally to food, uh, you know, aren't going to be impacted as much. And I do feel the conversation needs to go there, don't you? That we need to talk about what we're eating, how culturally we, we have relationships with food that's very different and how that's going to impact our health in general. Not even talking about pandemics and viruses, but just health on its base level. I hope so, that we do start to pay more attention to this, uh, because, yeah, like I said, it's very important, and it does dictate a lot of your uh, overall resilience and, uh, yeah, just uh, metabolic health. Like, even if there weren't to be a pandemic, you know, there's millions of people dying to uh, cancer and heart disease and diabetes every year already, so <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's not considered a pandemic, uh, but it should be like, in, in some aspects, like that. It's a, it's a real concern and it's not something that uh, is supposed to be determined or uh, guaranteed. Like it's, it is a lifestyle disease mostly. So um, you can prevent it to a great degree. And there are a lot of things that you can do by just, uh, you know, starting to eat a better diet, uh, exercise more, sleep better. And yeah, just uh, maybe fix your nutrient deficiencies. Would that be your top three things if you were to if you were in place of power right now to say, hey, we have to improve our health as a country. Here are three things we're going to do better. We're going to eat better. We're going to move more and we're going to sleep better. Would that be what you key on on if even from that biohacking mind of yours? That would be like a, the three three most important things for uh, just overall health and a better better uh, resilience. Yeah, I, I, that would be good. Good start. <laughs> So where do you see biohacking going next? I mean, it, it feels like there's still this uh, groundswell of people getting involved more and more. I see all the time on social media, on Instagram, more people are embracing biohacking. But where do you feel it's going to go next? Is it going to be some you know, breakthrough in technology that allows us to do more? Is it going to be just a, a better appreciation and more people 
you know, going in on those fundamentals of sleep, diet, and uh, movement? Maybe the next decade uh, or like the, you know, the 20s that are coming, that's going to be, I think, mostly about just uh, like genetics, lab tests, blood work, uh, and uh, like doing personalized nutrition and personalized uh, healthcare based upon that. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, that's uh, the current technology that we have. And uh, yeah, like we can use like different uh, AI or something uh, with that uh, to figure out uh, what is the best solution for a particular person and uh, what should they do you know, in a particular sense. And I, maybe, maybe I would say that the access to those things is also going to just get better so that uh, you don't necessarily have to you know, go to your uh, local doctor to uh, get those things. You can start to get those things at your doorstep and uh, you can, you get like this, maybe like this online cloud uh, where you can coordinate or synchronize your different tests together and maybe work with uh, some sort of a practitioner or like a, some expert uh, who knows how to like analyze uh, those things. But maybe like within the next few decades, then I would think that's where we're going to start to go into more like the technology space that we figure out more fancy gadgets uh, that are actually going to be, you know, more involved with our body directly, like, you know, the Neuralink and some other things. I think that's going to be probably the future that we will come across in the few decades that we have, like some implants or something uh, in, in our bodies. And, you know, of course, that can be a lot of, uh, that can raise a lot of eyebrows and uh, create a lot of conspiracy theories and that sort of things. But <laughs> I think uh, that's, uh, that's something like almost inevitable future that we are heading towards, at least like, uh, unless something really changes drastically. So would you say you're, you're embracing that change, like the neural link and everything, or are you a little freaked out by it? Of course, there is some concern. And uh, I, I, like, um, I think there is always the danger that if someone is, uh, you know, controlling your body, like if they are inside your body, like if there is something technology there, then someone can always hack it and, and do what else it, it may be. But at the same time, I think like people will just voluntarily accept it or embrace it. Uh, oh, yeah. Because like, because like the convenience and the everything else that you get will be just, uh, the, the people will prefer that over like their sense of security or uh, some privacy. Of course. I mean, you look at it right now when we have any issue or problem, we just want a pill to make it go away. We, right. we don't care what those pill side effects are. I mean, look how many people, especially in America, are on you know, pharmaceutical drugs and multiple ones with very harsh side effects, but that's the go-to. So I don't see much of a resistance, really. If you're ready to put a pill that has serious side effects in you, why wouldn't you be able to you know, be against technology? Me, myself, I'm a little bit more of that purist in like Waldo and Emerson and Thoreau of I want to be with nature. I want to, you know, what I came into this world with. That's what I want. I don't want any extra pieces or anything like that. Right. But everyone's different. And I do embrace technology and I do think there is a fine balance and, and you could find it between technology and nature and living in, in a natural world. And that's where I, I feel people should be looking for, not to say against technology. Technology is wonderful. Right. But also right. not to say, I think a lot of what we've seen in this pandemic is a lot of us are living unnatural lives and that leads to an unhealthy, you know, um, existence because yeah. we're, we're living in these concrete jungles. I mean, I live in New York city. I get it. I'm not knocking people that live there, but I am saying it's probably not the healthiest and I do need to yeah. escape to nature as much as possible to recharge, to reconnect and do that and live in that balance. So I think a yeah. lot of what biohacking is doing also, if you're really approaching it the right way, is trying to find that, that balance as quickly as possible, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree that like, the balance is a key and uh, 
you, you, you know, imbalances than to just create disease and uh, other problems. So, um, yeah, we, we can go off balance for a short while, but uh, if we were like uh, chronically out of balance, then uh, like it's even like it, it could be possible to like resist it and fight it. But uh, sometimes it's just easier and more effective to just go with the flow, which would be like, uh, you know, embrace the natural things and uh, go back into balance. So what's next for you, Sim? What, what do you have on, on board? Are you doing, I mean, with the pandemic, I can't imagine you're, you're traveling and doing too many talks right now, but another book on the way, what, what do you got going on? On a daily basis, I am like just writing and creating content. And I am like uh, Dr. James and I, we have yeah also considered to uh, write another book about minerals. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's what we're doing. And next to that, um, I've also, uh, you know, helped to make or like start in this upcoming documentary or like a movie movie thing about biohacking, especially about stress. That's also going to be coming out maybe uh, 2021 some, sometime. Uh, but yeah, other than that, um, just, yeah, there's always something to do. And uh, yeah. There's always something, especially like you said, when you have a passion, you've been doing this since 21, I'm sure you have a, a long list of things you're doing that can keep you busy to the end of time. So, But it's awesome that you're really going after that and spreading this wealth of knowledge that you have with everyone. So thank you for that. Where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. And my uh, website is uh, seamlund.com and uh, all the social media platforms, I'm also seamlund. Yeah, and that's S-I-I-M-L-A-N-D, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so go there and check it out and start to apply biohacking your life. I think it's incredibly valuable and, and when you get to know it, you're realizing this is just something that we've been doing for a very long time, finding ways to improve health as quickly as possible, live longer, live happier, and those are things we should all strive for. So, Seem, thank you so much for coming on and all the best to you and everything you're doing in the future. Yeah, you too. It was a pleasure talking with you. Healing, in a sense, is simply changing or hacking our bodies back into homeostasis. So the idea of applying biohacking principles to medicine seems to make a lot of sense. Sim made it clear that we have a lot of different ways to optimize our health, and that many of those can be used by those suffering from poor health. Together, in conjunction with a comprehensive medical plan that is personalized to each patient, it seems that in the future we'll see the gap between biohacking and medicine continue to diminish. At least that's what I'm hoping. Check out Sim's books to learn more about applying biohacking techniques in your life, and remember that you are your own greatest healer.